Please turn in your Bibles to Titus. Paul's epistle to Titus will be again in chapter 3 this morning. And I'd like us to read verses 8 through 15. Titus chapter 3. Please follow along as I read verses 8 through 15. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. It's truly wonderful to read the many descriptions and pictures the Bible offers when it speaks of the conversion or the salvation of an individual sinner. The Bible speaks of that individual as passing, as it were, from death to life. They're going from a place of being dead in sins to being alive in Christ. In other places, it's described as passing from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. The Bible teaches that when one is saved from their sins, they are justified in God's eyes. The picture there is that of a courtroom that in the eyes of the just and holy and righteous judge, the individual sinner is reckoned to be right with the judge, reckoned to be right with God. Their sins are forgiven and they're counted right. Uh, The sinner in other places is said to be redeemed, that is, to be free from the curse of sin, to be free from sin's guilt and power, uh, to have all of their debts paid and to be redeemed. It's said also to be reconciled to God, literally to become God's child, to go from a place of being God's enemy and under God's just wrath to being in a place of favor with God such that they're adopted into God's family and deemed to be God's children. In other places, the Bible speaks of our salvation as being united to Christ, being in union with Him, and it's probably hard to imagine any more beautiful and wonderful thought than being united to the Son of God. The Gospels in particular put pictures in our minds to describe the sheer joy and excitement that accompanies the salvation of a sinner. So you might think of uh, the picture of the lost sheep who, who the shepherd goes out and finds and carries on his shoulders and brings back to the flock and the, the celebration and the joy that accompanies that picture. There's the parable of the prodigal son, the wayward son who goes off and, and, and then returns, turning away from sin and coming back into the embrace of his father and into the house. and. There's a celebration and a banquet that's thrown because that lost son has come home. 
And we read there in Luke 15 that, that actually whenever a sinner repents and turns from their sin, there's actually celebration in heaven in the presence of the angels, a scene of joy and a scene of excitement and exuberance that a sinner has been saved. And if you've ever personally had the experience of seeing a person come to faith in Christ, you know something of just the sheer joy and excitement that can be present uh, when a sinner has finally turned from their sin, placed their faith in Jesus Christ. No one, of course, is more excited perhaps than that individual who has passed from death to life, but in a very appropriate way, the church enters into that joy. We celebrate the salvation of that sinner in the waters of baptism, and there's rejoicing among the people of God. Well, imagine now there's this individual sinner. They've been converted. All these wonderful things have happened that the Bible says have happened to them, all this joy, all this excitement, all this exuberance. But the question may emerge at some point, now what? So, so, so I've been saved from my sins, I've become a child of God, I've been introduced into the life of the church, but now what? Is it just sort of to hang on until heaven? What's, what's the purpose of life now? What am I to give myself to? What is to mark my life now? What am I to live for? Now what? Well, the book of Titus, in large measure, provides answers to this question. You remember the, the climactic verse, the dramatic verse in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, if you've been with us in this series. There in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God, we understand that to be in the person of Jesus Christ, has appeared like an epiphany. It's, it's shown on us. There's been a revelation of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and it brings salvation for all people. But Paul quickly says in verse 12 that the grace of God does more than, than save. The grace of God then trains us in how we ought to live in the present age. The grace of God comes like a teacher, like a tutor, like a coach, like an instructor, and disciplines us, trains us, coaches us in how we are to live or to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And grace teaches us how to live upright and godly lives in the present age. Grace trains us in how we are to live as the people of God and as the children of God. And as part of the focus of grace's teaching and training, the issue of good works becomes especially prominent. But part of the focus of grace's teaching, grace's training in our lives, is to teach us to be people who are zealous for good works, people who are ready for good works, people who are devoted to good works. This is a major theme in the book of Titus, and I have to admit one of the, the deficiencies of this series so far is that I don't think I've adequately emphasized this theme enough, and so this morning I'd like to conclude our series in the book of Titus and expound verses 8 through 15, but in so doing, I'd like to give special attention to this theme that is so large in the book of Titus, and that is the theme of good works. I'd like to open up verses 8 through 15 under three main headings, three main headings, and the first heading is this, consider with me the priority of good works. The priority of good works. Please look again at verse 8. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, speaking to Titus now, and I want you, Titus, to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Titus, saying is trustworthy, I want you to insist on these things. Titus is to be careful to bring this matter to the attention of the people of God in Crete again and again and again, and he's to do so with special urgency, 
uh, with special focus. He's to insist on these things that those who have believed would devote themselves to good works. If you were a member of Titus's church uh, and he was preaching Sunday by Sunday, you would very likely often hear this exhortation that, that, that we, the people of God, would devote ourselves to practicing good works. And maybe there were some in the congregation who sort of roll their eyes and say, there goes Pastor Titus again. He's telling us again. He's on the good works hobby horse. Hopefully, that was not the response. Hopefully, people thought, here it is again, this most important theme, this most important subject that we, the people of God, are to devote ourselves to good works. Some years ago, I got to sit in on a, a lecture with a man named Dr. D.A. Carson, and uh, Dr. Carson was reflecting on several decades of teaching in uh, a, a divinity school, a seminary, and uh, uh, taught probably 30 or 40 years uh, at that time. And he made this remark. He said, you know what? My students are unlikely to remember most of my lectures. They're not going to remember most of my lectures. Imagine, here's this great lecturer, this great theologian saying that. They're not going to remember most of my lectures. And then he said, but they will probably remember those things that I got excited about. They will remember those themes I returned to again and again. They'll remember how animated I got when I was talking about this or that subject. They'll remember the things I got excited about. And probably for Titus, this was to be one such thing. Titus, in the tone of his voice, through repeating the theme again and again, through enlarging it and opening it up and looking at it from different angles, time after time, he was to bring with special force this message that we who are God's people, we who have believed in God are to devote ourselves to good works. He was to insist on these things. The second half of verse 8 says, we're to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That, that the people of God, those who have believed in God, may be careful, may take care to devote themselves to good works. Now listen, there are a number of things the Scriptures teach us that Christians are to give attention to. There's a number of things we as the people of God are to give special attention to, to take care, to devote ourselves to. There are a number of things Christians are to devote themselves to and pay special attention to. The five o'clock news is not one of them. Uh, the uh, latest polling data is not one of them. Uh, the latest trends in fashion or the standings of our favorite sports teams are not among them. Um, the latest uh, uh, headlines and gossip in the evangelical world are not among them, but this is among them. What are the things we as Christians are supposed to pay attention to, to give careful thought to, to devote ourselves to? One of them is this matter of good works. This is to occupy a place of priority in our thinking and in our lives. We're to devote ourselves, the text says, and that's a very appropriate translation of the Greek word. Devotion connotes purpose intentionality, priority. He doesn't say if we happen to do a good work or two, well, that would really be nice. For those who are so disposed or so inclined to give themselves to good works, well, that's just super, that's just great. No, he says, we who have believed on God, and that is all of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and have been saved from our sins, we are to devote ourselves, to take care, to give ourselves, to, to, to actually give mental energy and time in our schedules were to devote ourselves to good works. 
So brother or sister, by way of application, whatever your priorities in life, this matter of good works needs to be high on your list. This should occupy some measure of your thought life if you're a child of God. It should get onto the schedule that I'm to give myself to the practice of good works. Now, it's important that we ask, I think, what does Paul mean by good works? What's he talking about with good works? And there's actually something to see here that I think is very important. When Paul uses the phrase phrase good works here, I believe he's primarily emphasizing acts of righteousness, benevolence, and love toward others. Now, the phrase good works is used in multiple ways in the New Testament. Here, though, in the context of the book of Titus, I think what Paul has primarily in view when he speaks of good work, good works, are acts of righteousness, charity, benevolence, and love, particularly toward others. Though good works can, in some contexts, encompass acts of personal piety, such as fasting or prayer or memorizing Scripture or mortifying sin, all very important things Christians should give themselves to, that's not so much the meaning here. When, when Paul says we're to devote ourselves to good works, I don't believe we're to think he means like, like inner, inner works of personal piety, devotion to prayer, fasting, etc., that we should give ourselves to those things. In the context of the book of Titus, I believe Paul has in view particularly good deeds of charity and kindness that are said to be excellent and profitable for people. In verse 14, Paul commends good works as those things that help cases of urgent need. The focus of good works is outward in orientation. We engage in these kinds of good works to help others, to serve others, to love others. These works are others-oriented. Works such as caring for widows and orphans, providing relief for the poor, showing hospitality to a needy individual or family, volunteering one's time to serve children, helping a young family move into their new home, visiting the sick, comforting those who are mourning, serving the church in practical ways, giving of one's resources to benefit someone of lesser advantage. We're to be zealous for these kinds of works. We're to devote ourselves these kinds of good works. Now, I want us just to appreciate for a moment just how prominent this theme of good works is in the book of Titus. Hopefully, you have your Bibles open to Titus. It's probably, in total, just on two pages. It's three short chapters. just want to quickly survey the book and just hopefully impress upon us how large this theme is in the book of Titus, how much attention is given to the subject of good works. Beginning with chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says he's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, And why is he a servant of God and an apostle for Jesus Christ? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And in some sense, when we considered that verse, we said this does introduce one of the major themes of the book. Paul is serving the Cretan Christians and their faith, but it's a sort of faith which accords with godliness. Paul is not after faith without works. He's not after serving a sort of faith that doesn't produce godliness of life. He's after faith which accords with godliness, which is in fact the only true and genuine and authentic type of faith, faith that accords with godliness. Well, then in verse 5, Paul says to Titus that he needs to complete uh, that which has remained undone. He is to appoint elders in every town, and then he gives the qualifications for elders. In verse 8, it's said of those elders that they're to be hospitable, that is, they're to 
to care for strangers and those who are in need. They're to be a lover of good, the text says. Verse 8 says they're to be upright, presumably in conduct and word and in deed. Then, after giving the qualifications for elders, the Apostle Paul then confronts the false teachers who are present in Crete and who are harassing the church and upsetting whole families and teaching what they ought not to teach, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of men and things like this. And in verse 16, Paul sort of passes a verdict on these false teachers. And this is what he says about them. Chapter 1, verse 16, these false teachers profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They say they know God, they say they have faith in God, but it's not the knowledge of God that accords with godliness. They deny Him by their very works. They're not walking in the good works that you would expect of one who is a follower of God. And then he says this, the second half of verse 16, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And we could say the idea is that Christians ought to be fit for good works, but these false teachers, they're unfit for any good work. Then in chapter 2, in verse 1, Paul instructs Titus that he's to teach what accords with sound doctrine. I think he means teach the, the pattern of life, the ethics that accord with sound doctrine, because that's precisely what Paul then does. He starts teaching older men and younger men and older women and younger women and bond servants how they ought to live in the present age. And so he instructs the older men, and he instructs the younger men, and he tells the older women to, to help, to come alongside the younger women, and to encourage them that they might live aright, and he exhorts bondservants as well. And right in the middle of that section, in verse 7, Paul actually addresses Titus in particular. He says to Titus in verse 7, you, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. You're instructing these Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, bondservants, you're instructing them in how to live, but you yourself, Titus, as the leader of the church, you show yourself to be a model of good works. You exhibit to the congregation what it means to live a life devoted to good works. Just a little hermeneutical tip, Bible interpretation tip. Whenever the leaders of the church are called to be an example in something, that amounts in essence to a command that the members of the church do that same thing. Because the leaders of the church, and Titus in this case, was to be a public example, meaning the members were to look at him and see modeled in him something that is praiseworthy, something that is God-honoring. They were to be an example of good works, and thus the people of God in the Cretan churches were to look at Titus and see reflected in his character what it was like to model a life devoted to good works. Well then, chapter 2, verse 11, of course, the grace of God appears, bringing salvation for all people. And grace begins its ministry of training, training us to renounce ungodliness, training us to forsake worldly passions, training us how to live upright and godly lives in the present age, to wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus, the appearing of the Lord Jesus. And then this statement is made with reference to Christ in verse 14. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Why does Jesus redeem sinners? Why has the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to people and then drawing people into this sort of training ministry that grace brings? One of the reasons God saves us is so that He would purify for Himself a people who are zealous for good works. Your zeal for good works is part of the reason why Jesus saved you. 
Jesus wants individual Christians, one to Christ, a community of people who are purified and who are zealous for doing good to others. He wants a people who are zealous for good works. Well, more quickly now, chapter 3, verse 1, Titus, or Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Our text in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Chapter 3, verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. The importance The priority of good works is woven throughout Paul's letter to Titus. And in our study of this letter, we must appreciate just how overwhelmingly prominent the priority of good works is to the letter's theology. And we who are the people of God, we should all be thinking, if I am a Christian, God's will for my life is that I be one who is zealous for good works. The will of God for me is that I devote myself to good works. Paul, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, makes this a top-level priority. Devote yourself to good works, he says. Titus, people must learn this, he says. They must give attention to this. God wants a people who are zealous for good works. And so we should ask ourselves, how should we live? What am I supposed to do with my life and with my time? The answer is, I am supposed to give myself in a major way to doing good to others, to populating my life with regular and frequent deeds of charity and benevolence that are said to be profitable and excellent. Friends, people who live this way don't waste their lives. They actually live lives that matter. People who give themselves wholeheartedly, zealously, who are ready to perform good work, such people who make as part of their lives the frequent and regular practice of doing good to others and populating their lives with deeds of charity and benevolence and kindness, such people matter. Such people are walking in the will of God for their lives. So much for the priority of good works. Now consider with me secondly, distractions from good works. The priority of good works, which is good, now distractions from good works, which is, of course, bad. Look at verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So Paul is just commended in a major way that we devote ourselves to good works, but then he says avoid, and he lists these things, foolish controversies. As a Christian, there will be things inevitably that might get you into some level of controversy with people. There might be some necessary experiences of controversy even in the life of the church. But Paul is calling us here to avoid foolish controversies. Controversies in the church, controversies in our lives, you you sort of stop and you look at them, why am I doing this? Why are we arguing about this? Why is there controversy? This is foolish. We're to avoid foolish controversies. We're to avoid genealogies, it says. 
Not entirely clear what Paul is trying to communicate there. Perhaps it's disputes over genealogical passages in the Old Testament. Or it could be that some of the false teachers were were trying to establish their own lineage with certain Old Testament figures, and there were debates over who descended from whom to establish some sort of status in the life of the church. Paul says, forget about all that. That's worthless. That's unprofitable. He says we're to avoid dissensions, another word for disagreements and divisions. We're to avoid quarrels about the law, probably in that context, quarrels about either the details of the Mosaic law or some of those commandments of men Paul talks about in chapter 1 that the false teachers were laying on top of the people. Avoid those obscure quarrels about the law, he says. Then he says these things are unprofitable and worthless. The controversies, the dissensions, the quarrels, they are unprofitable and worthless, which places them, I think, in direct contrast to the good works that are said to be profitable and excellent. You see that, right? In chapter 3, verse 8, the good works are said to be excellent and profitable, but these foolish controversies and these dissensions and these quarrels about the law, they are unprofitable and, in fact, worthless. Paul, I think, is intentionally drawing a sharp contrast between these two things. You can give yourself to good works which are excellent, which are good, which are praiseworthy, which are profitable, or you can give yourself to these foolish controversies, these useless dissensions and quarrels, and they are unprofitable. They are worthless. The false teachers in Crete themselves were likely promoting these things. Members were being ensnared by these quarrels and these foolish controversies. And not only were they giving themselves to these fruitless and unprofitable things, but they had become a distraction from what was actually fruitful, what was actually profitable and excellent, namely the good works that Christians are called to pursue. You see that, right? Two things happening. They were giving themselves what's unfruitful. They're being distracted from what is fruitful, and that is serving others through good works. You possibly had some in the Cretan church context who would rather sit around a false teacher's house debating precisely which foods were clean and unclean. Meanwhile, there was a needy widow just next door who was being neglected and had no food at all. You had some who were perhaps wasting their time quarreling and arguing over unimportant secondary and tertiary issues and maybe even dividing from one another. Meanwhile, there were some in the church who perhaps lacked the means to adequately take care of their families. I think that's something of the picture Paul is drawing here. People giving themselves to these useless things, like distractions from what was the main thing, that they would give themselves to the good works that God has called us to. Now, it's at this point that I would like to issue a humble warning for us in our day and context. I think that this very issue is a huge temptation for many Christians today. To get caught up in fruitless, unprofitable, and worthless quarrels and dissensions and controversies that distract from what is to be their main occupation, namely loving other people and doing good to their neighbors. And we should be on alert against these types of things. Discernment blogs, quarrels on social media, Divisive arguments over highly obscure and nuanced points of theology. Some people fill their time with these sorts of things. Listen, you may not know what I'm talking about when I say this. If the shoe fits, you know, wear it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just sort of leave this behind. But, but my Christian friend, 
I assure you, you will not have to answer uh, the question as to whether or not you know what critical race theory is. And you won't have to answer for whether or not it's influencing this teacher or that teacher. The Lord is not going to require you on the day of judgment to define what cultural Marxism is. But, but I, I do have a hunch, based on Matthew 25, that He is going to ask you about clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and caring for the stranger and those who are in suffering. We can get so occupied with petty debates online and headlines and gossip swirling around in the larger evangelical world, and it can distract us from the very present needs that are present in our own church family and in our own communities. So, brothers and sisters, I just want to call us to stay local, to read our Bibles, to love our neighbors, and to stop getting distracted by garbage online. That stuff is unprofitable and worthless and unfruitful. Let us give ourselves to the things that really matter, the things that are fruitful, the things that are excellent, the things that are profitable, namely the good works that God has called us to, the acts of charity and benevolence and kindness toward others that are to be features of our lives. Let's not get bogged down with the foolish controversies and the quarrels and the dissensions and the bitter divisions that are taking place out there on Twitter or whatever. It's an ugly world online, and Christians are biting and devouring one another. They're splitting from one another, and they're getting caught up in things that don't matter at all, things that are unprofitable, things that are worthless, things that are useless. And we should ask ourselves at times, why do I feel the need to get involved in this? Why do I need to give myself to this? The world isn't waiting for our opinions on all the problems that are taking place in the evangelical world, or why this popular preacher invited that popular preacher to his conference that now puts that popular preacher outside the camp or something like that. Y'all, that's not our problem. That's not our issue. And the Lord Jesus, when He speaks to you in the day of judgment, that will not enter the conversation, I assure you. He'll be much more concerned with how we lived our lives. If we, as those who had been given the gift of faith and the new birth, gave ourselves to the good works that God has called us to, let us, brothers and sisters, stop debating about useless things and get busy loving our neighbors and doing good to others. I apologize if my tone got a little too earnest there, but I do think this is a very important issue, and I'm very concerned that we can get distracted very concerned about this, but let us give ourselves to what's brighter, what's altogether more lovely, more wonderful, what God has called us to in His Word, good works that are excellent and profitable and fruitful. Let's devote ourselves to these things. Well, verse 10 goes on, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Essentially, we're to have nothing to do with divisive people, Paul says. If people are determined to divide after issuing a rebuke once and then twice, we're to wipe our hands of such people. Such a person is said to be warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And I feel very certain that at this point, Paul has in mind the false teachers that are there in Crete. Rebuke those men, issue that rebuke once, issue it twice, and then be done with the man. Such a man is warped and sinful, you're not going to make any more progress 
with that guy if he's determined to be divisive. He is self-condemned. So there's a couple things we should learn here. We ourselves must not be such people, factious people, divisive people. They're given the sharpest sort of censure here. We can't allow ourselves to be those types of people. But more than that, there's this requirement that we actually dissociate from such people, which is an exhortation we maybe should take more seriously than we do in our day and age. Brothers and sisters, the concern is not only that such people and such controversies and divisions themselves are unprofitable and worthless, but that they actually distract us from the main thing, which is the good works God has called us to, the loving, benevolent, others-oriented good works that should fill our lives as Christ followers. Please now consider with me thirdly and finally, we've seen the necessity of good works, or the priority of good works, excuse me, distractions from good works. Now, thirdly and finally, the indispensable value of good works. The indispensable value of good works. These are a priority, of course. We shouldn't get distracted from them, but why? Why are good works so valuable and so important? Paul's already said in verse 8 that these works are excellent and profitable for people. Then he talks about the foolish controversies and dissensions. And then he talks about the factious man and the need to dissociate from such people. And then Paul begins to conclude his letter in verse 12. He says that he wants Titus to rendezvous with him at Nicopolis. In verse 13, he wants Titus to speed Zenos and Apollos on their way to provide for their needs. And then it's like he just can't let this issue of good works go. Like, like he's signing off, but he's got to put one more word in there. You might think of... Um, a, a mother who is leaving uh, her kids behind. Mom and dad, husband and wife are going out on a date and she's leaving behind the kids for the first time with the babysitter and she's a little frantic and she's anxious about some things and so she's going over lists and, and telling the babysitter what to do. And even as the door is closing, right, she sort of sticks her head in one more time and says, oh, and don't forget to heat up the milk at eight o'clock or whatever it is. Well, why does she do that? Because she's anxious to some degree and because she loves her children. And so here is Paul as he's signing off. He, he has room maybe at the bottom of the page for one last word, and what does he go for? What does he address? What does he draw their attention to? It is this issue, once again, of good works. Verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Why are good works so important? What makes good works so valuable? In summary and in closing, I think we could say three things from the book of Titus. Good works are valuable, first of all, simply because they're helpful to people. That's what Paul says in verse 14. Devote yourselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. People find themselves in places of urgent need, and they need a helper, someone to come alongside them and to provide them aid and to provide them relief. And one of the reasons good works are so wonderful, these acts of benevolence, charity, and kindness and generosity are so spectacular, is because they actually help people. They're actually good for people. My wife and I say this often. We've been in, in church life long enough that we've just really come to depend on the church for just about everything. And we'll have a need in our lives. Some, something will come to us. And, and, and some brother or sister or family in the church will come and relieve us and take care of us and, 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 and do kindness to us. And we just increasingly reflect, what would we do without the church family? 
What would we do without the people of God? Here's an urgent need, and there were God's people to meet the need and to help us. I imagine many here feel the same way. Well, this is one of the reasons why good works are so valuable. They help cases of urgent need. Secondly, good works are the substance of Christian fruit. They are the substance of Christian fruit. In chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, Paul describes our great salvation. He describes the appearing of the goodness and loving kindness of God by which He saves us. And he talks about the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Last week, we talked about verses 3 through 7 and about how everything in the passage emphasizes what God has done on our behalf to save us. And then we read verse 8, so that those who have believed in God, those who have been saved by His grace and who have been brought into a relationship with Him, well, now they're to be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is the fruit of faith in God. God has brought about new birth. God has brought about the supernatural transformation and washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And what happens then in the lives of these new Christians? Go back to the opening scenario. Here you have this new Christian. She's a freshman in college. She's come to Christ. She's been baptized. She's overjoyed to be a child of God. But the question comes to her, now what? I'm starting my sophomore year. Might have 50 years ahead of me. Now what? Well, now it's time to be fruitful through the grace that Christ supplies. Now it's to be responsive to grace, our teacher and our trainer who's going to train us how to live upright and godly lives in the present age and to devote ourselves to good works. These are the signal fruits of a relationship with Christ. Good works are the substance of Christian fruit. And thirdly and finally, why are good works so valuable, so indispensable? It is because they adorn the gospel message. They adorn the gospel message. You remember chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's just not the will of Christ to save us and then to whisk us off immediately to heaven. What he is doing is a work of purifying his people. He's redeeming them from lawlessness. He's training them by his grace. And one of the things he wants to create and display is a people who are zealous for good works. And I can't help but return to that picture we're given in the Sermon on the Mount, right? What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? No one lights a lamp and, and then puts a blanket over it. City set on a hill can't be hidden. It shines, right? And what's the point Jesus makes? That people will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is that the good deeds, the good works are, are part of the, the brightness of what the gospel does in changing a person and saving a person. It's part of the product of grace in the life of the individual who passes from death to life and from darkness to light. They become people who are committed and zealous for good works. And this is meant to adorn the gospel message. I hope as you've listened to this sermon, uh, you've not thought, oh boy, there's just another list of things I gotta do. Here's another to-do list. I think Paul would rather us think, this is wonderful. This is bright. 
these good works that God calls me to, that are the product of His grace at work in my life, this is a life well lived. And this is a life and a legacy that is within the reach of every Christian, older, young, rich, or poor. Every Christian is called to give themselves, to devote themselves to good works, and let no one be mistaken. We don't think for a second that these good works form the foundation or the grounds of our salvation. You're tracking with me, right? You get that. We don't think for a second, by performing these good works, we either introduce ourselves into a place of favor with God or maintain a place of favor with God. We are saved purely and totally and only by the unmerited mercy and grace and favor of God shown to us in Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He has saved us. He has done the washing and renewing. He has justified us and made us heirs of eternal life according to His goodwill and His grace. And now it is our privilege, as those transformed by the grace of God, to devote ourselves, to give ourselves to these good works that are helpful for people, that are fruitful, that adorn the gospel message and give honor to our Savior. Brothers and sisters, as individuals and as a church, let us heed this word from the Holy Spirit and be a people who are careful to devote ourselves to good works. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, when we were in sin, those of us who are your people, We could hardly have imagined all the great things you would do for us by your grace in justifying us and redeeming us and reconciling us and adopting us and uniting us to your dear Son. The salvation that we have in Christ is more wonderful than we could ever have fathomed. And surely none of us could have anticipated the privilege of what it would be to follow Jesus as one of his disciples and to be transformed by your grace such that we become these sorts of people devoted to good works. Help us, Lord, to become more and more what we actually are by Your Spirit. Help us to live in accord with the faith that You have given to us. Help us to live lives that are upright and godly in the present age. So bring Your grace to us so as not only to save us but to train us and to teach us And to make us in this life as sanctified as a justified sinner can be. We pray that you would work within each one of us. That we as a church body would devote ourselves to these good things. These good works that are profitable and excellent. We pray that you would not allow us to get distracted by foolish controversies and quarrels and dissensions. But help us to give ourselves to that which is fruitful. Make this to be the hallmark of our Christian lives and the hallmark of our church's ministry. That as those who preach the gospel, coming alongside, keeping pace with that preaching would be these good works of benevolence and mercy and charity toward others. We pray that this would mark our lives, that this would mark our church. And that something about these good works and these lives you call us to and equip us to live, that something about them would be compelling and bright and attractive to the world drawing others to see something of the truth of the gospel 
and the grace that saves and transforms. Even now, shower this place with that grace. May the grace of God appear to each one of us and bring salvation to each one of us, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.